Good evening and welcome back to the 46th edition of Geeking with Destination Venus. We have got quite a packed show for you this evening, full of opinions about geeky news, views and general stuff. So we're going to get started straight away and dive immediately into... And we'll get started in space with leaving space and the return of U.S. astronaut uh, Mark van der Hey uh, to Kazakhstan aboard a Russian Soyuz capsule, accompanied uh, by cosmonauts uh, Anton Shkaplerov and um, Pieter Dubrov. Now, uh, we've been watching this closely because... You know, in case you've missed the news over the last few weeks, there's an issue between Russia and, well, I was going to say the re- the West, but it's pretty much the rest of the world. I mean, India and China are kind of keeping out of it, but apart from that. Um, now, it was thought by some, and I was tentatively among this bunch, that um, Van der Hey might not come back aboard a Soyuz capsule. They might find some reason to leave him on the station a little bit longer until he was able to come back aboard an American SpaceX vessel. That hasn't happened. He's come home as planned. Um, Yesterday, as as I'm recording this, uh, on Wednesday the 30th of March, completely on schedule, uh, no issues at all. And I'm really, really pleased because whilst I continue to be, uh, let's go with furious, at Russia in terms of Ukraine, I am relieved to see that the international cooperation in space continues relatively untroubled. And we've had this before, of course. The, The US and Russia and the Western space agencies have been cooperating aboard the ISS 23 years now well longer i mean that's that's since the station was launched obviously they had to cooperate to get the damn thing launched in the first place so there's a long history of actual people not governments not agencies but actual people working together there are very close relationships between astronauts and cosmonauts there are very close relationships between the people who work at mission control at nasa in houston and at mission control in moscow for roscosmos And I'm pleased to see these relationships of trust kind of working because this kind of cooperation is important. And scientists working together, regardless of what their governments are up to, is one of the finest things about our entire culture. So very, very pleased that the situation in Ukraine hasn't impacted what's happening on the ISS. Now, they have kind of said that they're not talking about it on the ISS, and I actually don't believe that. We reported a couple of weeks ago about um, the new tranche of Roscosmos cosmonauts coming aboard the International Space Station wearing the colours of the Ukrainian flag. And because the internet ate those show notes, uh, that image is in this week's show notes, which are up. At least as I record this, I'm making the show notes as I go. So it should be there. The Internet cannot possibly eat it again. It must be full. Anyway, I think actually what's happening is people in Russia who have good access to unbiased outside information know what's going on. And they're doing their thing to minimize the impact of the actions of their leaders on Russia's general standing abroad because they know that Putin won't be there forever. Uh, They know that Putin's lackeys will not be there forever. And they're looking to the future and they're thinking, you know what, we don't want to be isolated. So I think ultimately what's happening in space makes me optimistic. It is worth actually pointing out, uh, aside of all of the politics and nonsense, exactly what van der Hey has achieved aboard the ISS. Um, He is now the US astronaut who has the longest time in space, uh, consecutive time in space. 
Uh, he's logged 355 consecutive days in orbit, uh, which beats the previous 340-day record, which was set by astronaut Scott Kelly in 2016. Um, that's impressive. Uh, these 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 endurance records they do matter because they're helping us learn what kind of effect long-term exposure to microgravity and to all of the other pressures of space will do to a human. And we need to know that if we're going to go to places like Mars or even beyond with uh, crewed spacecraft, because there ain't no way of doing anything quickly in space. Not really. Not once you're out of Earth orbit, because everywhere is a long way away and speeds are limited by all kinds of things. So these kind of long duration missions are important. Um, it's not the longest time anyone's been in space. That's obviously set by the Russians because it's the kind of thing they do. Um, it was actually logged by uh, Valery Polyakov, who spent 14 months aboard Mir, uh, launching in, uh, I think, 93 and returning in 95. That's amazing. And that's just genuinely amazing. So human spaceflight continues. It seems that earthly politics isn't going to make any difference, at least in the short term. In the long term, it will, because the people who control the money can always pull Russia's support for the space station away. And if that were to happen, it would be difficult, genuinely difficult, to keep the ISS going for as long as NASA wants to. Um, NASA has plans to keep it going until 2030. If the Russians pull out, I don't think that's viable. But we'll see. Uh, hopefully this conflict in Ukraine can be resolved relatively quickly, although already not quickly enough for the people in the firing line. But we're going to leave that there for now and move on to other stuff that's happening in space. And we do have another good news story because our next step in our return to sending humans to the moon is about to be taken. If you're listening to this on the day it drops, the 31st of March 2022, tomorrow, NASA is going to take part in a full wet dress rehearsal for the Artemis 1 launch. Now, you're probably now thinking, uh, what now? Well, basically, what that is, is not launching a rocket, but doing everything up to launching the rocket. So they're going to load it with fuel, uh, which is why it's called a wet dress rehearsal. It's a liquid fuel they're putting on board this thing. Um, liquid oxygen, mostly. Uh, they're going to run through the whole procedure. And if that is successful, uh, and we'll know by Sunday, April 3rd, uh, they're going to start doing it on April 1st. Really, guys? April 1st? But OK, never mind. Um, it's going to run through until Sunday, April 3rd. If all that goes well, we should be getting a launch date for Artemis 1. Now, what is Artemis 1? Artemis 1 is the first mission of a human-rated spacecraft to the moon since 1972. No people are going. We're not as crazy as we were in the 1960s. Uh, Apollo astronauts took all kinds of risks on the way to the moon. We're not doing that anymore. What this is, is a, an, an uncrewed spacecraft that is capable of carrying people, which is, you know, there could be people on this if we were prepared to take the risk. It's going to go out to the moon. It's going to come back. It's basically Apollo 8, but without people on board. And it's to test the viability of the launch system, the way the, sh the, the, the spacecraft itself, the Orion space capsule works. And it's also carrying a whole bunch of science uh, experiments uh, and missions aboard because nobody wants to waste a flight around the moon just to send a, a, an uncrewed ship for a, road, for a road trip. Artemis 1 is the proper next step. Uh, a small step, if I can quote Neil Armstrong, but an important step. At the moment, we don't know that we have hardware capable of taking humans as far away as the moon. We haven't done that, I need to stress this, since 1972. We don't have any Apollo-era kit left. Uh, if we did, it wouldn't be safe to fly. 
And, and I know this is mind boggling. We don't have the technology to recreate Apollo. We actually couldn't do it, even if we wanted to. I know. I, I'm surprised by that as well, but we actually don't. We don't have all of the blueprints for the machinery. Uh, a lot of the engineers who worked on it are dead, so we can't even ask them. It's an almost entirely new machine that we're sending, except it isn't because it's heavily based on space shuttle technology. Um, the space launch system, which is the rocket that's taking the capsule up, that's entirely space shuttle technology. It's basically two supersized uh, uh, space shuttle solid rocket boosters. Uh, they're the ones that were strapped to the side of the big orange tank and four shuttle main engines at the bottom of the big orange tank and the big orange tank. So the only difference really is the size of this thing. It's enormous. And the fact that instead of strapping the space vehicle to the back of the fuel tank in the way that the shuttle was organized, which was never a good design. Sorry, guys, but it wasn't. Uh, this is traditionally just perching uh, a cone shaped thing on top of what is effectively a massive fuel tank with some engines on it. It's a very traditional looking rocket in that sense. It's the biggest thing NASA has flown since the Saturn V that took people to the moon. And it's a big gamble. It may already be obsolete technology insofar as SpaceX's Starship is also getting very close to launching into orbit, at least, if not into the, to the moon. And uh, I can't help thinking that cool as I think it is, the SLS, the Space Launch System, may not be the future that we used to think it was. So, you know, happy and sad about that. Uh, it is entirely down to the procrastination of the people that fund this stuff. NASA has been on this since George W. Bush said he wanted NASA to go back to the moon and then on to Mars. And he said that in the early 2000s. So NASA has been working on this stuff for 20 odd years. The reason it's not happened yet is entirely because different administrations keep pulling the money, which is fine. That's what the American government is for. If they don't think that space exploration is as important as other priorities, it's their call to make. But there's also kind of some criticism of NASA for taking so long, and it's entirely not NASA's fault. And, you know, I, I, it annoys me when space agencies get blamed for what are essentially government decisions. So, you know, there's that. A little bit irritated by it. But hey, the up and down of it is we are sending something back to the moon that if it works, the next time it flies, could take people. It probably won't, but it could. And speaking as somebody who is 50 years old, but is too young to remember people walking on the moon. It did happen in my lifetime, but I was not quite one year old when it did. Um, I, I've been wanting to see this my entire life. And I'm very excited that I might actually get to. I didn't think that I was going to. I had come to believe that we were stuck in low, low Earth orbit for the rest of time and we're not now. And I am so excited. I cannot tell you. My little geeky heart is just doing backflips. And that is not the only good news we have to tell you about in space. Oh, no, no, there is more. And we're going to go back to the ISS and its viability. Uh, because whilst the astronauts and the cosmonauts are playing nicely, other people at Roscosmos are not. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dmitry Rogozin, uh, who is the chief of Roscosmos, uh, made a few headlines uh, when he said that the US, US would have to, and I'm quoting here, use broomsticks to fly into space because Russia was not going to be making its rocket engines available to US companies. That matters because an awful lot of American, in air quotes, rockets actually use Russian designed and built rocket engines. I know. I don't understand why either, but there we are. 
Um, the Atlas rockets do, several other rockets do. And yeah, that potentially, if Russia stops supplying the US with rocket engines, potentially, that's a bother. Quite a big bother, to be honest. But NASA is always prepared. And uh, in a statement uh, last Friday, they have shunted 12 additional missions uh, onto the commercial resupply services, uh, which are flown by SpaceX in their Dragon capsules. And that should keep the space station supplied. Um, six, Sorry, six are going to SpaceX, six are going to Northrop Grumman with their automated um, cargo system. That's going to keep things going right the way through till 2026. And there's no reason why that could not continue beyond that. In fact, it says something about the confidence that NASA has that they haven't contracted these two companies just to take care of it until the end of the station's life, which is what, 2030, another four years on top of this contract. So they're actually already thinking, you know what, we may put this out to tender again. So it's quite a quite a bold statement from NASA in its confidence to be able to continue to do what it does, whether or not. Russ Cosmos continues to support the station. I'm still nervous about Russ Cosmos's involvement. If Russ Cosmos were to pull out completely, that really would be a problem. Because while America has the ability to get stuff and people there, half of the station is Russian. And at the moment, half of it is controlled from Moscow. If they really wanted to cut up nasty, they could make life very, very difficult indeed for anybody who wants to be aboard the station. We've already seen them make an, uh, an accidental backflip of this thing because they accidentally fired some thrusters at the wrong time. Those thrusters are under Moscow control. So if they wanted to have another, air quotes, accident like that, they could. They could do it at any time. So Whilst I don't really buy the posturing of Rogozin, um, he knows how important the ISS is to Russian prestige, and he knows that Russia cannot do this alone. Um, it's it's good to know that the US has contingency plans that will keep the ISS supplied, whatever happens. And staying with SpaceX, there's been news this week from Elon Musk everybody's favourite billionaire Bond villain. And he's been, I'm just going to call it posturing, actually, just a little bit, about his Starlink system. Uh, now, I, I am in a couple of minds about Starlink. Uh, we've talked about this before. I'm not going to go into details about why I'm not a fan particularly of the idea. It does turn out to be useful. We, we've looked in the past at how Musk sent Starlink ground stations to Tonga, after the tsunami took out its communications. Uh, and he has also supplied downlink stations to Ukraine to help with their communications in the current conflict. And he was asked about this in an interview with Business Insider and whether he was concerned that the Russians might use some kind of cyber attack to take out his satellites, or even whether they might actually just take the satellites out. The Russians do have the capability to shoot stuff down in space, we think. So, you know, he was asked about this and he downplayed it completely, uh, basically saying something on the lines of, uh, there's no way they could. And I hope he's right, actually, because I don't particularly like the idea of there being lots of satellites in space that a, a straightforward cyber attack could take out. Because that would be a whole load of space junk, completely uncontrolled. So um, it's, it's an interesting interview. Uh, I can't link you to it in the show notes. I do have a link to an interesting engineering article which summarises it. Um, where, you know, Musk talks about the anti-satellite capabilities that Russia has and um, the cyber attacks. Uh, but Musk says he's confident it won't be used against Starlink stuff and... I guess we take his word for it, particularly because his confidence seems largely to be based in his certainty that even if the Russians do try and take his satellites out, 
he can put them up faster than they can shoot them down. Now, there's a huge amount of hubris in that, but I've got to admire that confidence. And the final news item for the space section makes me really glad that people are feeling confident about human presence in space and our ability to keep stuff up there. Because we're back to planetary defence. It was reported a week or so ago that a potentially hazardous, and that's in heavy air quotes, asteroid uh, known as 2007FF1. My goodness, they're really snappy with the asteroid names, aren't they? 2007FF1, really? Um, is going to be making its closest flyby ever uh, of the Earth. Tomorrow, April Fool's Day. Yes, no, I'm not kidding. This is actually happening. It's not a, fool, a joke. I don't do those about space. It's true. Happening. Um, it's going to be going around about 47,950 kilometres an hour. That's 29,800 miles per hour. And it is uh, between 360 and 656 feet in diameter. That's between 110 and 260 metres. And yes, we've not had a good look at this thing. We don't have accurate measurements. It's going to miss us by around 4.6 million miles. That's 7.4 million kilometres. And that's really close. Uh, there's a blurry photo of the space rock coming in our direction. Uh, it was captured by the Virtual Telescope Project on March 24th, uh, when the asteroid was around 7.2 million miles uh, from Earth, which is why I'll forgive them for not having accurate measurements on it. Um, this is evidence that confirms that the asteroid will make this flyby as has been predicted. It's not like we've only just spotted this thing. We knew it was coming. Links in the show notes to an article which actually has the images that you can look at. Now, why am I getting upset that this thing is going to be four point odd million miles away? That's not that close. It is, actually. It is quite close. Uh, that's within the margin of error that includes it hitting us. OK, it's not gonna. It's fine. Don't panic. But... It's close. It's too close for comfort. And it's a reminder that we do need to have systems to deal with things like this. It's also a reminder, of course, that we have systems that can at least warn us about things like this. We knew this thing was coming. We know where it's going to go. And we know that although it's a little bit too close for comfort, it's kind of fine. Um, and we also know when it's coming back. It will next be back uh, within... 4.9 million miles of Earth on April the 2nd, 2037. So mark that date in your diaries and keep watching the skies, I guess. <sighs> and on that bombshell or potential asteroid impact, we'll leave space behind. Okay, not that many science stories this week, so we're going to skip science, and I don't have an engineering jingle yet, so we'll just imagine there was one. I don't know, maybe it goes, engineering! That's not really a great jingle. But the engineering news is good. First of all, we are all aware of the issue of climate change. It's a problem, and it's not going away. Our carbon footprint is way too high as species, and the temperature is definitely rising as a global average. And that's causing really weird weather. And, you know, just look out the window, guys. Just look out the window. Anyway, one of the things we need to do in order to curb our carbon footprint and hope to reduce the damage that we've already done is to cut down on the amount of carbon we use when we're generating energy. You know, I mean... I'm recording this in Yorkshire. We used to mine coal and burn it in power stations with great abandon. And that turns out not to have been the best idea ever. So this is encouraging news coming out of um, a renewable energy think tank called Ember. Um, they've looked at the numbers and crunched all the stuff. And it seems that 2021 was a real landmark year for renewable energy. as 38% of the world's total demand for power was met by renewable and clean energy sources. Now, OK, 
That's still significantly less than even half. But, my goodness, that's a lot better than it used to be. Uh, now, obviously, obviously, <coughs> there's still a way to go. Uh, Wind and Solar, for instance, uh, in 2021, contributed about 10% of the global energy demand. Now, OK, that is not a huge contribution, but it's double what it was when the Paris Accords were signed in 2015. So we've come a long way in a relatively short time. I don't think we're going to keep that momentum up, but still. Of course, there is an, ele an elephant in the room here, and I'm not going to dance around it. 2021 was a weird year. Quite a lot of the world was still in lockdown. We were in lockdown in the UK until, what was it, May? May for me. I mean, it's April for some people. But So de global demand for energy was lower. You add to that the fact that renewables are being ramped up. The truth is that less fossil fuel was needed to meet demand. As the pandemic becomes endemic and we all start to pretend it's not happening and go on with our lives, the likelihood is that energy consumption will rise and that quite a lot of that increased demand will be met by oil and gas and even coal, which is making a bit of resurgence. That being the case, we can expect that the numbers in 2022 will not be anything like as good. So bear that in mind when we get all depressed next year when this year's figures come out and they're not as good as last year's. We are making progress. It's not enough and it's not fast enough, but we need to take the wins when we get them. And this, I think, probably counts. And in other engineering news, um, this is the bit where Reggie pours some cold water on something that he quite likes, which I don't like doing, but at the same time, I think realism is kind of important. I saw a video this week uh, featuring an aircraft that its, its promoters are calling the Flying V, which promises improved fuel efficiency, greater speed, more passenger room, and is going to revolutionise aviation. Well, yeah, but isn't, though, is it? Um, links in the show notes to the interesting engineering article, which has this article um, and the video. Um, basically, what we're talking about is a blended wing. Now, that results in a triangular sort of shaped aircraft where the wings are actually part of the body of the craft. The whole thing generates lift. And rather than sitting in a tube with wings stuck on it, you're kind of sitting inside the wings as a passenger. There are huge advantages to a design like this. Uh, they're efficient. They allow for more room. They, you know, the, the point of with modern aircraft, current aircraft, is that they're tubes with wings stuck on. And to make them aerodynamic, you want that tube to be as narrow as possible, which means you're always compromising on space. The blended wing, because it's a triangle, width is built into the, the design. So you can fit loads more people in with greater comfort. Because the whole thing, the whole aircraft is generating the lift, it's more efficient. So it needs less fuel and it can be faster. All of these are great things. You know, It's a no brainer, but it's not going to happen. And there are all kinds of reasons why not. The first is the companies that are currently building aircraft, Boeing, Airbus, Boeing, Airbus, um, they're not going to change their entire factory system to build a totally different design of plane. They're very good at building tubes with wings on. That's what they're going to keep doing. And because those are the aircraft manufacturers that people trust, airlines are going to keep buying those planes. Also, people tend to be resistant to change. And I am sure there are going to be people in airlines who are pushing for these flying V blended wing type aircraft to be part of the fleet. And there are going to be people above them 
saying, yeah, but they look weird. People won't like it. And that kind of conservative thinking is going to be a barrier to this kind of revolutionary design for quite some time. Will it happen eventually? Maybe. Maybe. But it's going to take an awful lot. And I don't think we're going to see them in the next 50 years. I really don't. I'd like to be wrong. I'd really like to be wrong. But I don't think I am. So let's move on to the geeky entertainment news, a segment for which I also don't have a jingle. So here's the geeky entertainment news. And we're going to start with something that actually hits quite close to home here at Geek Towers. And that's the news that David Addison himself, John McClane himself, the force that is Bruce Willis, is stepping back from acting. And he's doing it because he's got a condition called aphasia. Now, this is a horrible thing. It really is. Um, I am somebody who uses words for his living, really. I was an English teacher before I, I did this kind of stuff. Uh, words matter to me. And aphasia is a condition that basically takes them away from you. If you develop aphasia, what basically is happening is the language centers of your brain are stopping working. This can be caused by any number of things. It can be caused by brain injury, um, either a sort of traumatic injury like a blow to the head uh, or um, a stroke, that kind of brain injury. Uh, it can be caused by certain types of dementia. And what happens to the person who has this condition is that language literally stops working. Speech becomes difficult not because of any physical impediment. You know, all the physical bits, the tongue, the lips, everything that you use to generate speech, still work perfectly. What you can't do is form the words in your brain, the things you actually want to say. So you, your brain isn't telling your physical vocal equipment to do the things it needs to do to make the words because it can't find the words. It also makes language more difficult for the, the person with aphasia to understand. Uh, so they might have difficulty understanding what you're saying, and they will certainly begin to struggle with reading and writing. It is a horrible condition. And what makes it worse is that unlike dementia, uh, straight, you know, sort of Alzheimer's style dementia, aphasia doesn't necessarily take out cognition. So your brain is still fully functioning. You're not losing the ability to think. You're simply losing the ability to form words. And to be locked into that is horrifying to me. Absolutely horrifying. Um, I said it hit close to home. I have a family member who has a rare form of dementia. Uh, wait, technically it isn't dementia, but it presents as such. Um, it is basically a very rare and very complicated form of aphasia with a name I cannot pronounce. And so I've seen this at first hand and it is hideous. So my absolute sympathies and best wishes go out to Bruce Willis and his family. This is going to be a tough one for them. It really is. And I have every, every sympathy in the world for them. Uh, but. Do you know what? Bruce Willis is not dead. This is not his obituary. And I firmly believe that we should celebrate the people who've had a positive impact on us while they're still around to appreciate us saying that. And I'm not flattering myself and imagining that Bruce Willis is listening to this. But if you are, there have been times, Mr. Willis, when I have thought you to be an insufferable ass. I disagree with you on many, many, many things, but you were David Addison in Moonlighting and you made the last two years of my first secondary school, what would now be years 10 and 11, you made those years bearable. So thank you for that. You were also John McClane in Die Hard. We won't talk too hard about the last two sequels, but Die Hard and Die Hard 2 are two of the best action movies ever made and they are only worked because you were John McClane. So thank you for that. Also, I quite liked the album The Return of Bruno. So do you know what? I'm going to watch Die Hard this weekend and then I'm going to watch some Moonlighting. I am going to remember Bruce Willis for the wisecracking, hard-talking wordsmith that he's always been. And 
I encourage you to do the same. In better entertainment news, it's time to go back to Disney+. Plus. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I know I keep banging on about Disney+, Plus, but again, they keep doing good things. And the latest good thing to come out of Disney+, Plus is the first episode of Moon Knight. No review here this week. Uh, I said I was going to do what I did with Boba Fett and review every, every episode a week late to give people a chance to actually have seen it, uh, particularly because it drops on a Wednesday. This goes out on a Thursday, so, you know, I, I want to give people a reasonable chance. I think what I'm actually going to do is review the whole series at the end uh, because I'm going to be missing a couple of weeks um, during its run. Uh, more about which next week, but... Uh, so, spoiler-free first impressions. It's a slow burn. It's a slow start. That is going to annoy some people. In fact, I've been on Twitter today. It's annoyed some people. I think those people are wrong, but I may be prepared to stand corrected if things don't get cracking eventually. But people complained about how slow WandaVision was to get going. People complained about how slow Loki was to get going. People complained about how slow the Winter Soldier and Falcon was to get going. And they were wrong on every count. And even if they still think they're right, they're still wrong. So be prepared for it to be a slow burn. You might want to wait for a couple of episodes to be available if you know you don't like the anticipation thing. Me, I love the anticipation thing, so I'm cool with it. Um, second thing, I was mean about Oscar Isaac's English accent when I talked about the trailer for this show. And... Do you know what? There is no force on God's clean earth that is going to get me to say that his English accent is good. But it's not as bad as I thought it was. And I am therefore stripping him of the worst fake accent in movies title and handing that title back to Benedict Cumberbatch for his awful American accent in Doctor Strange. I don't know whether Oscar Isaacs would be pleased about this or not, but honestly... The accent isn't that bad, although I don't think anybody in the world actually says ladies, gators at all, ever. That's not a thing. If you are listening outside of the UK, please believe me, that is not a thing. Um, the other thing I have to say, because I'm cynical and actually I'm just sick of seeing this in TV and film. I'm not spoiling anything if I tell you that the character of Stephen works in a museum gift shop. I don't believe that anybody working in a museum gift shop can afford a flat in London of the size of the one that the character Stephen lives in in Moon Knight. For the kind of money a, gu a guy working in a museum gift shop, even the British Museum gift shop, which I think is what it's supposed to be, um, they're not earning enough to live in anything much bigger than a phone box. They're just not. Have you seen the price of property in central London? And it is kind of central London that we're shown him to be living in. So not happening, not ever. Please don't believe that. Please don't think you can come to London and get a job in any kind of shop at all and afford the rent on an apartment the size of the one that Oscar Isaacs has in this show. Beyond that, all I'm going to say is that I absolutely loved it. I'm not entirely sure where it's going, but I am digging it and I am here for this ride. So that's that. Next thing, though, is something that I am going to spoil because I didn't notice it. I had to be told about this and I want you to spot it straight away. There is an Easter egg in episode one and it's a glorious one. Early in episode one, entitled The Goldfish Problem, the character of Stephen, played by Oscar Isaacs, walks into the museum where he works. And he gets chatting to a young girl, schoolgirl. She's about 10. And during their conversation, there is a QR code clearly visible on the wall behind them. Scan that QR code and you will be able to download a free digital copy of Werewolf by Night 32, first published in 1975. Why is that important? Werewolf by Night issue 32 features the first appearance of Moon Knight. How cool is that? That is so cool. It's something, now they've done it, I can't believe they haven't done that before. What a brilliant idea. I mean, they've got the IP, 
It doesn't cost them anything to do this particularly. And it's just a really cool thing for fans to find, which you now know about. So go get it. Uh, it's good to, I've, read, I've read the copy before. It's a good comic anyway. Uh, it's some of the finest 1970s horror comics. It's awesome. Um, now, they're promising they're going to do more of this stuff. And again, why on earth hasn't more of this been done in the past? And there's only one instance of something like this being done that I can think of at the top of my head. Please do feel free to let me know of all the things I've missed. But the only example I can think of at the top of my head is way, way back in the 1980s, back when the ZX Spectrum and the BBC Micro were the best-selling home computers in the UK, and you loaded computers on them from cassettes that you actually put into a tape player that you then plugged into your computer. And if you listened to those cassettes, they made a noise. Now, if you're old enough to remember this, you, are, you will know what that noise sounded like. If you're not, then I can't give you an example of what it sounded like, except to say it sounded like dial-up internet did if you dialed up the internet and then listened on the phone. But if you're too young to remember that kind of sound, you're too young to remember that too. Uh, or it sounded like a fax machine sounded if you picked up the phone to it. And if you're too young to remember those kinds of tapes, you're probably too young to remember fax machines also. So it sounded weird. But it meant that computer code could be broadcast over the airways and there was a bbc show and i can't remember what it was called i want to call it micro world but i think that's probably wrong um and at the end of every show over the closing credits they would play a burst of sound that if you recorded it on a cassette and then put that cassette into a tape recorder and connected it to your bbc microcomputer or your acon electron it would be a program that you could then play on your computer. And I thought then it was the coolest damn thing I'd ever heard of in my life. And this QR code nonsense is a bit of nonsense. Of course, it's a gimmick, but it's just cool. And anything that encourages more people to read comics and to read the source material for all the Marvel shows, the better, the happier I am. So bring it, Marvel. Bring it. Keep this up. And DC, you can do this too. You've got all of these back issues digitized already. So giving it out as bonus features is just a no-brainer. So yeah, well stoked for it. Very, very happy indeed. Nice one, Marvel. I approve. Yeah. While we're on with Disney Plus, this isn't Disney Plus. This is Disney, well, this is Marvel Studios. Um, Morbius, the film, it's out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of my reaction too. I don't know. There seems to be almost no enthusiasm for this film at all from anyone, up to and including its director. Uh, and as the great Stan Lee would have said, enough said. Moving on. There is one final comics story I want to touch on this week, and it is, again, a Marvel story. You may have seen the film Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. If you missed it, it's on Disney Plus. I'm, I'm, no, I know, I know, I know, but it is. It's on Disney Plus, all right? Um, I quite liked it. It's quite a good movie. Uh, the comic Shang-Chi has been around for a long time. Long enough, in fact, for it to have been a bit problematic. You see, the whole point of the Kung Fu comics of the 1970s, things like Iron Fist and uh, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, were... Yeah, they were cashing in on the Hollywood kung fu craze that you know had been spearheaded by the likes of Bruce Lee, and you know, fair enough, that's what comics do. What they were also, of course, were kind of wish fulfillment aimed at mid middle Midwest white kids who had seen kung fu films and really wanted to be Bruce Lee. That's why Iron Fist isn't an Asian character. That's why Iron Fist. And at least until last month, why Iron Fist was um, a Caucasian kid, because, you know, he was supposed to be the stand in for all those Caucasian kids who wanted to be Bruce Lee. Master of Kung Fu, Shang-Chi, has always been Asian. And some people from the 
Asian and Chinese communities in America have kind of had issues about the way his comics in particular have presented the character. And indeed, Simu Liu, uh, the star of the movie Shang-Chi and the Legends of the Ten Rings, has stated publicly that if anyone approaches him at a convention with old master of Kung Fu comics, he ain't signing them because he regards them as offensive. Now, we can argue about that, and he's entitled to his view. I haven't read enough of them to know whether I sympathise with it or not, uh, except that I have read enough of stuff from the same era to make me think that, yeah, I probably would have quite a lot of sympathy with that position, to be fair. Um, So Marvel is taking some action. The current Shang-Chi comic is going to end with issue 12. Is it 12? I think it's 12. I want to say 12. Um, the issue 13, planned for June, has been cancelled. And the title is changing. It's then coming back called Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. It looks to have the same creative team. So it's not like they're sacking the people behind the comic or anything. They're just rebranding it. and. I'm frustrated. Not for the reasons you might think. I actually have no problem with them doing this. It's their call. It's their character. And if they have concerns that the way that character has been presented might be offensive to people who, let's be honest, could be part of the core audience, well, then, of course, they're going to change it. It's fine. That's not snowflakey at all. Although, inevitably, it has been accused of being such. No, I'm frustrated because... Why didn't they do that months ago? Because months ago, there was a film doing pretty decent box office called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. If there'd been a comic on the rack at the same time called Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, that would have been great marketing. And they didn't. And now it's too late to take advantage of the success of the film. And Marvel keep doing this. And uh, honestly, as a comics retailer, it is the most frustrating damn thing. They are dreadful, absolutely dreadful at capitalising on the success of one part of their operation to help stimulate another part of their operation. It would be a no brainer to do to have done that. And it would also be a no brainer that at the end of every Marvel movie, there was just a little thing in the credits that said, if you enjoyed this film, why not check out the Ms. Marvel comics or the Spider-Man comics? And they don't do that either. DC, God love them, are also awful at this, but at least they try. So yeah, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, issue one, hits all good comic stores in June. It's by the same people that do the current Shang-Chi comic, and the current Shang-Chi comic is pretty damn good. So, honestly, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. I just wish they'd done it sooner. <sighs> anyway, sorry. I'll calm down now and count to ten. And move on to the next thing. And since I'm getting frustrated with Marvel, let's talk about comics. And we're going to start with the return of an old friend. There's a comic called Astro City that has been around since the mid-90s. And it's an interesting concept. Basically, Astro City is a city where there are loads of superheroes, kind of like New York in the Marvel Universe or Gotham or Metropolis in the DC Universe. It's just a city where there are loads and loads and loads of superheroes. They're just normal, doing their superhero-y thing and fighting the loads and loads of supervillains who also happen to live there. So far, so unremarkable. Uh, it sounds terribly generic, doesn't it? But the thing about Astro City was it was designed to be an experience similar to reading comics in the old days, in the 70s and 80s, when comic shops were rare and you couldn't ever be sure whether you were going to see the next issue of a particular comic or not. I remember those days well. Astro City kind of replicates that because it would tell stories about superheroes you've never heard of and know nothing about. And it didn't matter. That was the point. Everything you needed to know was in that story. And it was great. It played with so many ideas of superheroics, 
so many superhero tropes, so many things that aren't properly examined in mainstream superhero comics because they're busy doing the thing they do. Astro City was kind of a not a parody is the wrong word. It was a reflection on superhero comics that reflected on the genre by using superheroes. It, the whole thing is so geniusly meta, I cannot tell you. And it really helps that all of the stories were always good. I've never read a bad Astro City comic. And then it went away for a bit. Uh, Kurt Busiek, the writer who has been behind the whole project, kind of said, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stop doing single issue comics and we're going to release full length graphic novels instead. That's the way the market's going. That's what we want to do. And um, I was disappointed in that because I love me a good monthly comic. I do. And uh, I thought, well, you know, OK, if that's what he wants to do, I'll just wait for the collections and I'll look forward to them because it'll still be Astro City and Astro City is great. And then nothing happened. And nothing kept happening. And now Astro City is back with a straightforward standard comic. It's a one shot. It's called Astro City. That was then. And it features a character looking back on his younger days, a superhero looking back on his younger days. Uh, when five friends, five young superheroes took a road trip to try and process the loss of the top teen super team of the time. They were called the Jayhawks and they were the idols of all the other kind of teen sidekicks. It's a poignant, actually quite moving story. Looking back on, you know, that summer that most people of a certain age have had. That year they had between being a kid and having to start taking adult decisions. That last bit where you got to decide who you were. I'm, I'm sure, certainly if you're my age, you've looked back on that summer. I know when that summer was for me. And it's quite poignant. I'm not going to say any more than that. It's a really nicely constructed story. And that's out this week. It is £3.50 from Image Comics. And um, I commend it highly to you. Available at good comic shops wherever they can be found. Including the one under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema. Now, speaking of things that have been on hiatus but are now back and welcome. Something is killing the children. Now, this is a comic I don't think I've spoken before on the show. I have, I think, spoken about the spin-off series House of Slaughter, which I loved. Something is Killing the Children follows the exploits of Jessica Slaughter, who is part of the House of Slaughter, which itself is part of something called the Order of St. George, which is an order that kills monsters. Suffice to say, if something is killing the children, Jessica Slaughter will kill it. She's a renegade, a bit of a loner. She has her issues with the way the House of Slaughter does business, which I can't go into because they would be massive spoilers for a series I hope you're going to read. It's brilliantly written by James Tinney and the Fourth. Um, it's got fantastic art uh, by uh, Werther Deladera uh, and uh, Miguel Muerto. And it, it's just hugely entertaining from beginning to end. It's it's it doesn't sound like an original concept. Um in the you know oh lone girl kills monsters that's a bit like Buffy but it couldn't be beyond the superficial couldn't be further away from Buffy the Vampire Slayer if it tried. Believe me, Jessica Slaughter is no Buffy Summers and Buffy Summers is very definitely not even in the same league as Jessica Slaughter. And I don't say that lightly. I'm a huge Buffy fan. So that's out this week. Issue 21 out this week, uh, back after quite a, a long break. Um, the previous 20 issues, you'll certainly the first 10, you'll struggle to find at reasonable prices anywhere. But the previous 20 issues are all available in collected form. I commend them highly to you. Issue 21 out this week. It is £3.50. Uh, available again from Boom Studios. Uh, from all good comic stores. Including mine. As it is. 
Batman Beyond the White Knight. Now, you know Batman. Batman is Bruce Wayne. Batman lives in Gotham City and punches bad guys. But not in this reality. The White Knight universe is a world where Bruce Wayne was a maniac. And he was arrested and put behind bars for the violence that he committed as Batman. This is not about that. You will also know, if you know Batman well, that the future of Batman is Batman Beyond. And this is Batman Beyond the White Knight. The Batman Beyond of the White Knight universe. It's brilliantly written and illustrated by Sean Murphy, uh, who I, I love his artwork. Absolutely love it. And it's ably coloured by Dave Stewart, who is, for my, for my money, one of the best colourists in the business. Gorgeous, gorgeous, muted palette here. Totally, completely, perfectly captures the mood. It's amazing. So, again, I commend this hugely to you. It's a very entertaining read. All of the characters you would expect to find are there. They're just different. And it's such a refreshing take on something that is, you know, just massively familiar to so many people. So that's Batman Beyond the White Knight. Book one. You can tell they're taking it seriously when they call it book one, not issue one. Uh, 450 from DC's Black Label comics, which means not for kids. Although I think safe for work. I don't think there's anything in here that's, that's not safe for work. Um, it's not Batman damned. Just hugely high quality Batman storytelling. And I am here for that. And with that, we will leave the comics there. Okay, that is just about it for this week. Uh, we have nothing at all on the Geek Community Notice Board. I am sorry we are letting you down, but people aren't telling me. So if you do have a geeky thing that you would like to promote, just let us know. Hit us up on info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Tell us what it is, tell us where it is, tell us when it is, and we will tell everybody else. No charge for this. We just love to promote geeks. But since there's nothing to promote, I will just say show notes are available. As I'm talking to you and recording this now, I am going to the show notes and double checking to make sure that they are there. And they are. So do not worry. The show notes are available at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Click on the blog button-y, icon-y thing on the um, button bar and find Geeking with Destination Venus, episode 46. I haven't decided on a snappy title as I'm recording this, but I'm sure it'll have one. We will be back next week with, well, if I'm honest, more of the same. I may get another voice on here yet. You never know your look, although, as previously mentioned, scheduling is a nightmare. Just again, a quick note to say, if you have anything you would like us to cover, something you think would fit our geeky little show, let us know. Again, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. And that's the same email address for anyone who has any comments, anything to say about the show at all, praise, criticism, um, corrections, clarifications, anything at all. Just info at destinationvenus.co.uk. We read every email you send, although at least one person listening to this right now is shouting at their listening device and pointing out that we don't always respond. And that is, I'm afraid, true. Uh, I, I, I hate to plead being a busy man, but I am. And it's not that I not, don't have time. It's that I don't remember because I've got so much going on. So apologies if you get in touch and I don't get back to you, but I will have read the comment. But... That is us for this week. All that remains is to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright production of Venus Rising Media. Uh, feel free to share it, though. We can't dig it when you do. And, you know, if you like it, tell folk, because uh, more listeners would be grand. So, we'll see you next week. Until we do, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to everybody else. Above all else, stay geeky. <laughs>